Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we grapple with flashbacks and try not to lose it. I'm joined today by Jules Evans, who is a writer and researcher on practical philosophy, altered states and traumatic experiences. He's the author of several books, uh, including An Overview of Stoic Ideas in Philosophy for Life, A Guide to Ecstatic Transcendence in the Art of Losing Control, and an edited volume called Breaking Open, which looked at spiritual emergencies. That's really now his focus as director of the Challenging Psychedelic Experiences Project, uh, which researches difficulties that people encounter, as well as what helps them to cope. So along the way, uh, we discuss Jules's own journey um, from a bad trip on acid that caused him years of anxiety to discovering Stoicism through its influence on cognitive behavioural therapy, uh, or CBT, which is not to be confused with CBD. Um, we also explore why Jules tried ayahuasca more than 20 years later and uh, how some of the after effects mirrored his teenage freakout, um, yet also provided some healing. Above all, uh, we reflect on the need for what Jules calls ecstatic integration, which is the, the name of his Substack newsletter. Um, in other words, a better understanding of the, uh, the risks and the rewards as more and more people try psychedelics um, and run into difficulties in other contexts, including practicing yoga and meditation. Now, you can contact Jules via his website, philosophyforlife.org, um, and there are links to his various projects in the show notes. Uh, to find out more about this podcast and uh, perhaps to support it as a paid subscriber, all donations are very gratefully received visit ancientfutures.substack.com. For now, though, let's take a deep dive into ecstatic experience with Jules Evans. Jules, welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me onto your podcast. Well, thank you very much for coming. It's a, it's a pleasure to be speaking again. Um, I was trying to remember when it was that we met up in London for your philosophy club, and that's already, I think, four and a half years ago. I <laughs> don't know where the time goes. It doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You came to speak at our philosophy club. 
Exactly. Yeah. Talking about uh, the history of yoga, um, you know, whether you're trying to raise a snake up your spine and other such, uh, you know, wonderful tales. Um, but I was just really impressed by the way that you had gathered such a community together that, you know, a few dozen people wanted to turn out you know, on a dark evening and listen to that sort of thing. So kudos to you. Thanks. Yeah, I um, I joined this uh, London Philosophy Club. It was already going when I joined it in, in about 2010. Hmm. Uh, and it grew and grew. And it eventually had like 11,000 members and was the biggest philosophy club in the world. And um, yeah, Londoners are really into uh, going and, and spending an evening listening and talking about ideas, it turns out. Yeah. And it happens in other places as well. And and for a while, I, I did a whole research project on philosophy clubs. And there, there are various different scenes of it. Like there's philosophy, Socratic cafes in Paris, for example. That's a whole uh-huh. scene. There's philosophy in the pub which started in Liverpool and was a kind I of remember that, yeah. kind of somewhat socialist kind of movement. And, and, you know, there's, there's, there's various other things, but um, yeah, anyway, I, I was involved with that club for, for, for several years and it was, it was great. Yeah. It's fun. It sounds like it must then have grown out of the work you were doing on your first book, which had a really catchy title, Philosophy for Life. Philosophy for Life and Other Dangerous Situations. Such as um, I'm intrigued by that subtitle. There. <laughs> well, cause it was really interviewing, people often in crisis um mm. so you know people um war veterans dealing with trauma or you know like there was a mafia guy who was in prison and came across philosophy in prison um there was a a cop who had anger issues and had, had found stoicism helpful for that so that was why it was it was the idea of philosophy being tested in in crisis situations and and being found you know, often to to work in in that kind of uh, extreme laboratory, so that that was the idea of it. And it sounds like it grew out of you know a challenging experience of your own, and uh, that's something that you've sort of circled back to uh, as your career has gone on. Um, now working you know, pretty closely on looking at uh, what you call challenging psychedelic experiences, and I wondered if you might be open to sharing the uh, the one that that set you off down this journey. Sure. Um, so I, I mean, go back to the mid nineties or even early nineties. Um, when I was at school, um, my friends and I were, were, were experimenting with psychedelics and, you know, smoking mm. a lot of dope. Uh, I first took LSD when I was 15, first took MDMA when I was 16 and we were going to kind of, you know, raves, uh, and part of the, the electronic, you know, dance scene, which was, which was a fantastic scene. And yeah, we had we had great times and it was really my almost my religion then, I would say, was kind of psychedelics, psychedelic perennialism was Mm. was my religion. Then I was I was I was reading Aldous Huxley and, you know, various other bits. Electrocolid Acid Test was my favorite book that when I was a teenager and like Hunter S. Thompson. And I was really this kind of 90s. Um, post 60s child, you know, yes. look back to the 60s. Oh, well, the 60s were the best, and, and psychedelics are amazing. And and you know, I haven't completely lost that positive view. Um, but uh, friends started to have bad experiences. Uh, my best friend had a um, kind of psychotic episode for after smoking a lot of dope and taking a lot of psychedelics. He ended up um, 
developing schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, and he's he's had that ever since. So for you know over thirty years, he hasn't been able to work. He's had a a, a really harmed life, and so I was I was aware that um, that that drugs can really harm people. And my own bad experience. I mean, I had a couple, but there was one when I was eighteen. When I take, I, I was at, by that point doing, you know, too many drugs, getting strung out, and I went to a rave and afterwards went to a kind of after party at a friend's house. Mm. I was I, I bought uh, <laughs> something at the rave, uh, LSD, and and I basically had a had a had a bad trip where I felt very paranoid and self-conscious. And I mean, that th- those kinds of experiences happen to lots of people. And it's a, mm. it's a bit of a question of how you deal with it. But I kind of dealt with it by not talking to anyone about it because I was 18, so I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it. My best friends weren't really around at that time. Uh, they were, I think, traveling. And, and so I, I, I never really spoke to anyone about it. And... I felt quite bad in the weeks after the experience, but then then it kind of shook it off. But when I was at um, university, um, mm-hmm. so I went to Oxford to study English literature, and I, I kind of got after effects from this bad trip. Um, things like panic attacks, um, social anxiety, because I was never sure when I might have a panic attack. They tend to happen in social situations. Nightmares. Yeah. Um, derealization and dissociation all this stuff which i had no language for and no no understanding of what was going on it was completely different to the last 18 years of my life where i hadn't had any um real mental health problems um so it was bewildering because it was like what's going on uh who am i why is, why why is this happening and the only resources i had were were my kind of intellectualism so I massively intellectualized it and thought, oh, is this some kind of existential crisis and blah, 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 none of which helped. I remember I did go to a um, a meditation group, a Shambhala meditation group. And, and I found that if, if I, you know, but I was trying to kind of meditate to not feel pain. And so mm-hmm. it wasn't really, like, it wasn't helpful healing meditation, like explore the issue and confront it. You know, it was uh, it it didn't really help. And um, so this happened. It's, this kind of got worse all the way through university. It didn't really resolve. It didn't pass. And I, I think I very much was kind of chasing my tail and trying to figure it out. And, you know, rather than just accepting it and letting it pass. Um, in my second year of university, I finally told my parents and they sent me to a, um, a psychotherapist, I think he was. And he said, well, you're, um, this, this sounds like just teenage angst to me and here are some beta blockers. So it was very much out of his expertise as well. He had, he had no uh, expertise with psychedelics or post-psychedelic difficulties. Um, and finally, so I kind of managed to kind of stay functional, even as my, you know, mental health was getting worse. I stayed very intellectually functional with my degree and I did finals and uh, and then afterwards, I really, you know, when thinking about, OK, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do in the world? Uh, that provoked a kind of mini breakdown. And um, at that point, my, my parents sent me to a psychiatrist at the Priory, which is this kind of, you know, famous 
clinic and, and rehab center in London. And the, the psychiatrist there said, um, you've got um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which was, which was actually helpful to kind of to, to, to learn that term. Yeah. Um, because the only thing I had to compare it to was like shell shock. I thought, oh, this this feels like kind of shell shock, you know, after World War One. So I go go away and read about shell shock, but of course that isn't massively helpful. Um, and uh, he said, "Don't worry, I can cure you with, um, you know, two sessions of EMDR, uh, eye movement uh. desensitization, something." Uh, and 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 EMT like the tapping technique. And I was like, wow, incredible! Five years of of worse and worse mental health, and this guy can cure me in two sessions. But uh, it didn't work for me. I mean, it kind of it gave me a sense of liberation for about a month until I had another panic attack, and then I was like, oh, look, I'm still in the jungle. I'm still in the in the dark forest. Mm. So um, what finally uh, helped me were was two things. Um, the first was when I was I, when I was about 24. By that point, I was um, I lived in Spain for a bit, tried to be a novelist, and that hadn't worked because I just didn't have you know the good enough mental health for that for the experience. <laughs> I, to tell the truth, I don't think I had the creative props to to be a novelist. Uh, you know, I, since recovery, I, I still haven't become a novelist. So, but that, that that was very much my plan after doing my English literature degree. So that didn't work, and then I ended up getting a job uh, in journalism and. At this stage, like right at the start of being a journalist, uh, you could do regional journalism. You could some of my friends got worked on the kind of gossip columns, or you could do business journalism. So I did business journalism, like writing about investment banking, which really, really wasn't my thing. <laughs> but um, so I was in this job that I didn't really like. I had bad social anxiety. I kind of didn't get on with anyone in the office because because I was so anxious, uh, and I wasn't really happy to be there. And um, Basically, when I was about 24, um, I had a bad skiing accident and that triggered a kind of near-death experience, which I'm not going to go into because it just, you know, it's a whole story. But, um, you know, it was a kind of white light type experience. And it was uh, tremendously healing for me because it was a sense of connecting to a kind of, I, I don't entirely understand what happened, but it was the sense of, you know, connecting to it like an indestructible soul within me. Because when you have PTSD, there's a strong feeling of being broken and permanently broken. And so if you have a transcendent experience, it's like, oh, I'm, there's something in me that isn't broken. Um, and also this sense of like, um, well, I got this 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 strong information during this, this near-death experience, which must have lasted about two minutes. And the information was, um, you're not permanently broken. What's causing your suffering is your beliefs. And so this ecstatic experience enabled me to somehow, to some extent, let go of, of the, this very, very strong belief, I am broken, I am screwed, and my life is going to be miserable, um, and begin recovering. So that massively helped me. Um, and then the anxiety and depression, to some extent, came back, and I realized I needed to uh, practice to to reduce the old um, depressive and anxious beliefs I had, and to strengthen this these new uh, ecstatic mystic, or at least you know self accepting beliefs. Uh, and so I was helped then by cognitive behavioral therapy, which then led me to stoicism. It sounds like what you 
had the great fortune to experience was to be shocked out of your habitual mode of operation in the opposite direction and, and to have this sense of benevolence and that there was a way of being with you again. And uh, perhaps then some training would enable you to do that, you know, as a more habitual thing. And uh, and that's the sort of thing it sounds like you were able to get from CBT and then start to, to write about from the perspective of, of ancient Greek philosophy. Um, I wonder, though, what it was about CBT. What led you to CBT? Well, I mean, I think it was two things. First of all, this this download, to use the new age term, uh, that I had during the, the near-death experience of what's causing your suffering is your beliefs. Mm. And and that was a, a, a kind of intuition I'd had before, but I, you know, it, it, it really became like a very embodied intuition that, oh, it's, it's, I'm doing this to myself. Um, my beliefs, my way of thinking is is causing my suffering. And then I'd heard, I think I, I might've even Googled therapy for PTSD or therapy for social anxiety, but this was in like 2000 or so, or 2001, 2002. So, you know, it was like, it was, I didn't Google it. I think I asked Jeeves did. I mean, we were talking early <laughs> of the internet dogpiled but, it <laughs> yeah and 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 it said oh cbt is 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 helpful for social anxiety and cbt is helpful for ptsd so um those two things and then i i found a um support group near me in london of cbt for social anxiety and there wasn't any therapist there but we followed this course uh, this cbt course for social anxiety called overcoming social anxiety step by step and i would practice that course listen to the was it tapes or no i think it was cds um and um and that was that was super helpful and and also meeting people in this group some of whom had social anxiety their whole lives and chronic social anxiety so it helped me realize that what was happening to me I, to stop over intellectualizing it and realizing oh this is a this is a, a, a an emotional disorder a mental illness which many many other people have it, they often, you know, it manifests in very similar ways, and there is a similar way out of this labyrinth. So that was um, extremely helpful to me. And then when I was doing the CBT, I was like, this reminds me a bit of the Stoicism I read as a teenager. And I went to um, interview the people who invented cognitive behavioral therapy. It was Albert Ellis and Aaron Beck, and they both told me that they they were inspired by Stoicism. So in my twenties. I got, uh, and, and to some extent in my early 30s, I got very into Stoicism. I joined Stoic clubs such as such as existed. Uh, I, I wrote a Stoic newsletter. I organized the first gathering of Stoics for two millennia in 2010. And, the, um, is that the Stoic Con? Well, that was later. This was even ah. before. Uh, the first Stoic Con was in 2013 or, or so, I think. So yes, I, I I was involved with the first Stoicon and then organized the second and the third Stoicon at Queen Mary University of London, where by then I was working. So um so yeah, it became you know I got really into ancient Greek philosophy and and it's and and fascinated by how it was being revived in various forms today. I'm curious as to whether you can discern, having obviously immersed yourself both in you know the practical benefits of CBT and um, you know gone quite deep into an exploration of Stoic philosophy, 
whether there are distinctions, whether there's something about Stoic philosophy that you know got left by the wayside in its rehabilitation, or whether what people are really into today is as close as we can get to, you know, the essence of what was around uh, over 2000 years ago. Um, no, there are definitely differences. Um, Stoicism was a kind of comprehensive philosophy of life. To some extent, it was a, a, a religious worldview, a religious philosophy, you could say. Mm. Um, it has this idea of the logos, this pantheistic universe guided by uh, an intelligent, fiery principle, you know, which is within us and within all things. Uh, and uh, ultimately, you should accept things in Stoicism, uh, accept what happens because everything is guided by the logos. So it cultivates this acceptance of God's will. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very much an, an ethics as well uh, in Stoicism. There's this idea of cultivating certain virtues within you. And, um, and you know, the, ultimately the most important thing is cultivating your, your virtue. For the Stoics, this is the number one thing in life and everything else is very much secondary. Uh, and, you know, so they're kind of Socratic in that sense. Like Socrates said, uh, the way to joy is just, well, he didn't say this, but in, to paraphrase, the way to, to a happy life is just to cultivate virtue uh, and this and this kind of detachment from external things. External things are morally indifferent. Even your family uh, and your country and so forth uh, are morally indifferent for the Stoics. The, what's really important is your inner virtue and in serving the Logos. Um, so, of course, CBT um, drops the metaphysics and it drops the ethics mm. because it's trying to be a secular therapy. I mean, there are still implicit ethics in CBT, the kind of Socratic idea of self-knowledge, of self-control, um, of learning to be somewhat detached from externals, uh, from external events, from the ups and downs of life. Um but those are somewhat implicit. Um, it it doesn't certainly doesn't talk about kind of you know virtue and and it definitely doesn't talk about the logos. So uh, in CBT, you know, why should you accept things? Um, you know, they will say things like, "Well, it's out of your control," uh, or "It's happened already." You know, it's the past, therefore you might as well just accept it. So it's more of a kind of pragmatist kind of thing. Like it's it's in your own. Uh, the interest of your own mental health to accept this thing because it's out of your control or because it's in the past or that kind of thing. It does seem very analogous in, in a lot of ways to you know the repackaging of, um, you know, in some ways, you know the, the core of Buddhism, as the, the proponents would suggest, as, as mindfulness, um, although obviously a lot of Buddhism gets left out in the process. Um, and you know, I wonder whether you yourself see, because I'm aware that you've got quite a bit of experience as well with Buddhism, um, a parallel there in you know in, in in what gets left out, and whether there's a particular cost to that. Um, the ethics, in particular, seems to me something that uh, could be emphasised more. Um, I think yes, I think there's definitely a, a parallel um, in that you you know an ancient moral tradition or an ancient um quasi-religious worldview uh which which promised its followers a kind of therapy for the soul mm. gets rediscovered in modern times and 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 somewhat reduced to a secular technique um and 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 gets detached from its um 
you know, from its ethics. And, and, and that can be problematic because, I mean, there have been cases of, of, of you know, people being being given CBT courses in prisons and they just become much more rational and effective uh, bank robbers, for example. <laughs> Likewise, yeah. you know, you become, a, you know, mindfulness for, for, for snipers, you know, exactly. as a famous example. Mm-hmm. I, I think... Um, the, the the difference is i think the reduction with mindfulness is is maybe a bit more extreme um because with buddhism this was a in some ways is a much richer and more filled out worldview uh, and mm. religion um that that had developed continuously for centuries and centuries and it had you know it was it had a whole community life or forms of community life attached to it, forms of ritual attached to it. So to reduce that just to mindfulness is much more, whilst in Stoicism, there it hasn't been a continuous living tradition. There was never really a Stoic community or Stoic rituals. So in some ways it kind of, you know, it, it, you can see why there would be a Stoic revival today in our individualistic times, because Stoicism has always been quite individualistic. Um, and the other difference I would say is that I think most people who practice mindfulness have some awareness of the connection to Buddhism. Mm. But I would think that, the you know, up until maybe recently, the vast majority of people who practiced CBT had no awareness of any connection to Stoicism. Uh, and that's I'd be interested to know what percentage of people who, who, who help, you know, who practice CBT today have have any awareness of the connection to stoicism it might be a bit more but i bet you it's still not over 50 percent no i think you're probably right there um it is also interesting to reflect on that individual dimension and uh you know to bring us back to to where we began with you know psychedelic experiences uh it's almost uh, you know, therapy that that reinforces a sense of self, um, which is you know, helpful <laughs> to a certain extent. And yet, you know, there's also a need sometimes to see beyond that you know, very limited sense of self that we can get you know, a little too attached to, and is in some ways the source of the unhelpful beliefs that fuel suffering. So um, yeah, I wonder. I, mean, I went, Go well, ahead. Sorry. I mean, you know, people often criticize cbd cbt for um <laughs> for um for being i think you know over over individualistic which is is probably fair though in my you know particular case it was it was in a group so that was i think that and that was very healing for me that group context hmm. but also for being kind of neoliberal and all about the government of the self and self-control and so on and even you know kind of strengthening the the ego but in a way, I think what what it teaches you is is really the first step of wisdom traditions, which mm-hmm. is um, yourself is is a, is a bundle of beliefs and habits, and they're changeable, and you can direct attention and exert choice to change even deeply ingrained habits. So in a way, I think that that kind of softens the the the, the solidified self. Because you know when you're when you're stuck in a in a mental illness, you're so, you know it's so solid. It's it seems so permanent, and then you know the, the 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 CBT, like other wisdom practices, helps you to kind of um to kind of reflect on it, and then maybe to kind of see differently. So I think it's possible that CBT is the beginning of a journey beyond the conventional, traditional, solidified self. 
Thanks for tuning in to this preview. Uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks, visit ancientfutures.substack.com.